Hey, go ahead and have a seat. My name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here at Lakeside. And if you're new, or maybe it's just been a long time, I'd love to say hi to you out in the lobby. We have an info bar and all that and connect, and that would be fantastic. I'm super glad that you're here today. And I don't know if you're any, any you know, at all like me, but uh, sometimes in life we, we make a decision and after we make that decision, we realize that that decision wasn't the wisest decision in the world. I mean, can you relate to me at all? Can I invite you into my world for just a few moments this morning? Like the time 12 years ago when I was down in Austin, Texas, and having this fantastic time at a backyard barbecue, Texas style, iced tea. It was fantastic. And there was this trampoline there. And I was thinking to myself, looking at all the kids jumping on the trampoline, that looks way more fun than what I'm doing right here. That was my first mistake. My second mistake was to listen to that little voice in my head that says, hey, dude, I don't care if you're sliding into 40. You used to do flips on the trampoline when you were 17, and you can still do it now. Get up out of that seat. Let's go. So I went over, and I started jumping on the trampoline. And whenever a dad jumps on the trampoline, all the kids freak out. A dad's jumping on the trampoline. So they're all over there. My daughter at the time, she's eight years old, and she's watching me. And Holly came over, and some of the adults, the owner of the house was there. And I was jumping really, really high, and I'm thinking, man, I can, I can, I can still do a flip. I know I can do this. And my daughter, she, she starts saying, Daddy, you're scaring me. You're scaring me. And I was like, it's okay. Daddy knows what he's doing. You know, he's smart and all that stuff. And so I went for it. Like, I just went for it. And I, I almost made it. Almost. <laughs> Well, I landed on my knees, and then that little voice came back, and it, said, and it said, dude, knees? Are you kidding me? You can't do 360? What's the matter with you? Land on your feet. So I got up, and I go, okay, I'm going to do it again. And I tried it again, and again, and again, and again. And I don't know how many times I tried, but I know I was sweating, and I know I was mad, and I know I was embarrassed. And I thought, okay, I got time for one more attempt on this thing. And so I told her, I'm going to do one more. And my daughter, who was standing off to the side, said, no, daddy, no, please, no. And my wife was standing a few feet away, and she said, you just need to jump higher, dude, jump higher. <laughs> no, daddy, no, jump higher. And so I started jumping higher, and I thought, oh, I'm, I'm just going to go for it. And I just go for it, and I... I now know just how loud the neck and the back can crack when you land on your head on a trampoline. Like, I know that sound. And apparently, I knocked the wind out of myself. Not apparently, I did, because I was laying there, and the only thing that people heard was, my neck, ah, 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 ah. And my daughter's saying, why, daddy, why? And my wife is saying, oh, no, he's paralyzed, this is it. And the owner of the house is thinking, do I dial 911, or do I call my lawyer first? I don't know which one I should do. Incidentally, the reason why my daughter was so adamant that I not try this is because she happened to be standing and she was only eight and so she's kind of at that height where the warning sign is woven into the side of the trampoline. And this is what it said. Paralysis or death can result if you land on your head or neck. Do not perform somersaults, flips, as this will increase your chances of landing on your head or neck. So apparently she's the only one that can read. And then look down at, at the bottom of there. It says, use trampoline only with mature, knowledgeable supervision. <laughs> so after that, I had to ask my eight-year-old daughter's permission whether or not I can jump on a trampoline. Sometimes we think something's a great decision. 
and it turns out not to be. And you know what it's like in life to get injured, don't you? We all experience injury. We all have pain in life. And sometimes we bring that pain on ourselves. And sometimes other people bring that pain on us. And you bring pain to them. I mean, you have all sorts of stories about that. And then sometimes, sometimes life just happens. Like, like, you know how it is, because you're human, life just happens. There used to be this bumper sticker back in the, in the 70s and 80s, like, I can't, was it called Stuff Happens? Do you, do you remember what it was? Yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes we experience injury in life. And sometimes we're just... We're just immature in life. Like, like, there's areas that we need to grow. There are always areas, pockets of our life, where we need to grow. And you might not be jumping on a trampoline at middle age trying to do flips. That's reserved for a special kind of dumb, all right? But if we're honest, like if we're really honest with ourselves, which is sometimes the hardest kind of honesty to have, there are corners of our life that we've ignored or rejected or suppressed or been embarrassed about or whatever it might be, there are corners of our lives that have lived in Neverland for far, far too long. You know Neverland, where the children never grow up. We all have areas where we need to grow. And for you, maybe, maybe these days it's... It's an area like, like your emotions how, and, and how, how you handle them. How you handle your anger, for example. Or maybe how you handle your finances or you, how you handle your relationships, your colleagues or your neighbors or your marriage or your children or your grandchildren. Maybe there's an area where you want to grow these days. Maybe it's your faith. And there's an area of faith or faith in general where you just realize, man, I've ignored this for far too long. I want to grow. So let me ask you a question. If there was a place where you could engage honestly your pain and your need for growth, like an environment that was filled with this unconditional love, and it was filled with grace and truth. And you gave people a front row seat in your life. And maybe even there were some people in your life where you handed them the red pen. You know the red pen? My teachers loved the red pen when I would write papers. You know, misspelled word, bad grammar, put this paragraph over there. I think accountability is fantastic, but I think that, I think that edit ability is oftentimes even better where you show somebody the story of your life and you say, help me edit this. Help me make it more beautiful. I mean, I know that that sounds idyllic and I, 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 know, I know that oftentimes we don't experience that or we only get it in short doses, but when it's there, it's real and it's beautiful and it changes our life. Would you, would you do that if you could? I think God's solution for the problem of injury is the power of grace. And I think the tool that God uses to challenge us in those areas where we need to grow is this, this truth. And part of that is Jesus says, I'm the truth. Jesus came full of grace 
and he came full of truth. Some of you guys are really good at the grace side, like the pendulum swings towards grace, and that's fantastic. We need more grace givers. Some of you guys just naturally, the pendulum swings towards the truth side. You, you struggle with grace and you kind of give the truth a little bit, right? And Jesus held that tension perfectly. And as we follow him, that's how he wants us to interact with one another. In John chapter 1, it says the word, and John's talking about Jesus. The word became flesh. He becomes human. God in a body takes on our experience and he knows what it's like and he knows how we feel. And it says that he dwelt, he literally, he tabernacled. He camped out. He stayed. He got down on our level and he journeyed with us for a while. He looks us eye to eye and he says, I'm going to do the human experience because I love you. And then the writer says that we beheld his glory. And that's a weird phrase, glory, because what the heck does glory mean anyway? If, if you want me to unpack this a little bit, come to the begin class because I talk about his glory and we kind of follow it from, generation, from Genesis all the way into Jesus and on. And, and I think part of what his glory was is that it was his love, his justice, and his beauty. This is what God wants to fill the world with. We beheld his love and his justice and his beauty. He was the only one, the only begotten one. He's the only son. He's, he's God himself. And he comes full of grace and truth. John the apostle writes. And he wants us to do the same with one another. We're really, really good at not doing that. And part of the reason why it's such a challenge to be honest about pain and growth is because as human beings, we're broken and we're sort of, we have this broken wiring and we end up judging each other and pointing at each other and sometimes humiliating each other. And then as Josh was saying, we hide in the shadows and God is always trying to draw us out of the shadows. And I think that's, that's what he wants us to do. See, we've been in this series lately at Lakeside. If, if you've been around the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about spaces. It's called space people. And, 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 and these are the spaces that we live in. And a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Brad, he talked about the large space or the crowd space. And, and we spent some time talking about this gathering right here. We have four of these every single weekend. And we talk about why we do what we do the way that we do it. Like, like, what is the reason for the music? And why are you, you know, some of these words are esoteric to me. And what am I saying? And, and what are we singing about? And why do we do that? And why do we, we teach? And why do we teach from the Bible? And why do we have coffee in the lobby anyway? I don't understand that and this and that and the other thing. And we kind of just went through that, our interactives. The crowd space is critical. And then last week, Pastor Brad, he talked about the mid-sized space or the connection space. And we have all these different mid-sized groups. A mid-sized group, the way that we define it, is anywhere sort of from about 50 to 100. And the mid-sized groups, they're all about connection and saying, hey, I recognize you. You recognize me. Maybe we should go, out, go grab coffee or, or, or do whatever. And we have these different mid-sized groups that are, are going on or they're just starting up. In fact, a little commercial here, if you are a parent of a teenager, I won't make you raise your hand because you're too tired 
tired and frustrated, so I won't make you do that. But we are going to have, on March 18th, save the date, a Parents of Teens mid-sized group. And it's going to be right here at the church. It's going to be fun. It's, it's living life with people that get it because you get it. And, um, and we're going to sort of go, okay, hey, what's it like to be the parent of a teenager? We're going to have a live band with music from the 80s and music from the 90s because all y'all know that's cool, right? And then we're going to interact and have some inspiration. So save the date and end commercial. All right. Mid-sized groups. But we also want to push it further because there's another space that we believe is one of the most effective kinds of spaces for change. And part of our mission here at Lakeside is this whole idea of change, transformation. And that's what we're about. We just believe that God actually does still change lives. And so we talk about the small space sometimes at Lakeside. A small space is like two to 12 people and, and, and thereabouts. And, and it's really a space where we live out right in close proximity with others this thing that we call the well-crafted life. The well-crafted life is a pursuit of Jesus. It's being formed by him. It's being changed by him. And in the well-crafted life, we live out these rhythms. We call them the five crafts, where we live out prayer and scripture and connection and generosity and service. And you could live those out anywhere, but there's something unique when we do it in close relationship with one another. And I believe that God feels so strongly about this that when Jesus came to the earth and he hung out with us, he dwelled with us, that he modeled that. He actually did that. And so if you have your Bible this morning, I want you to open to Mark chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some extra ones at the doors. And also, if you have a phone, you can download the YouVersion app because we use that all the time at Lakeside. Mark chapter 3, down in verse 13. And this is a little passage about Jesus calling his disciples. The disciples were some of his closest followers. And it says in verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And in Luke chapter 6, because there's these four books at the beginning of the New Testament part of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all sort of tell similar stories from different perspectives. And in Luke chapter 6, it says that Jesus went up on that mountainside and he prayed all night. And then he came down, and then he started to wander around and call people to him, to follow him. In verse 14, 14 it says he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. And this is another one of those things where we kind of just read it and skip over it. Okay, he had 12 disciples. Yeah, I've heard that story. You know, I saw a play about, you know, an Easter play and the Last Supper and all that, and there was 12 of those guys. And... But it's easy for us in America in the 21st century to just read over that and go, Oh, there's nothing really there. But the number 12 was so significant. In fact, it would be a little bit like if I went out on the playground and a bunch of kids, were, they had this orange ball and they were throwing it into this hoop and I came out on the playground and I said, I need five of you. 
They would know exactly what I'm going to do. We're going to have a basketball team. We're going to play this game. It's going to be fantastic. When Jesus chose 12, it was extremely symbolic and it was a statement. There were 12 12 patriarchs and there were 12 tribes in the ancient nation of Israel. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to do something. There's continuity here. I'm going to pull this story forward so all y'all better watch at what I do. And everybody would have been paying attention. Twelve, he's making a statement right now. And so they would have leaned in a little bit. And then it says in verse 16, These are the twelve he appointed, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boranandres, and that means sons of thunder. And I just think that's cool. Sons of thunder, 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 Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. And then there's Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Bartholomew had another name. His name was Nathaniel too in the Gospel of John. I don't know why they have to have so many names, like different names. It's just weird. And then there's Matthew. His name used to be Levi. Go figure. And then there's Thomas and James, son of Alphaeus. And he could have been actually Matthew's brother. We don't know. Maybe they just had dads that had the same name. There's Thaddeus. Sometimes he's called Judas, and I understand why he wants to go by Thaddeus. We don't name our kids Judas anymore. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read a list of names in the Bible, man, it's time, for, it's time for nap time. It's sleepy time. Like, if I can't sleep at night, go to the Old Testament, and I read, yo begat yo, and do begat dude, and begat and begat, and a line of names, and a list of names, a genealogy, or whatever. There's some long ones in the Bible. I mean, that's some, that's some exciting stuff. I was telling my, my buddy Doug Roush, who's our youth pastor here on Thursday, he said, hey, what, what passage are you going to preach from? And I go, well, I don't know all the verses, but uh, I'm going to teach from this list of names. It's going to rock, man. Rock people's world. It's going to be fantastic. I mean, it's, it's a list of names. Hello? It just seems benign. And All right, that's cool. Let's get to the good stuff. But actually, when we get behind the scenes a little bit and we get behind the text, the text was written in a context. It has a cultural location. It's not written in a, like, sort of a whitewashed, no context whatsoever. There's history there. There's religion there. There's politics. There's people. And there's all sorts of things going on. And I believe, actually, that Jesus, when he did this, it's one of the most radical, upside-down, backwards, according to the culture, and actually even humiliating for himself things that he ever did. Because he does everything wrong when he does this, this way. There's these writings that um, different scholars think that they came out at different times, but a good ballpark is anywhere from 200 B.C. to 200 A.D., and really the writings are the rabbinical thought of the time. So, so, so there's these things that we can learn about the culture, whether it was the Romans or the Jews or whatever was going on at the time. And there's literature out there. And so one of the things that scholars do in smart Bible studies, you go and you learn about this culture thing. And then you come back with new lenses and you start to say, well, in light of the context, what's really going on here? And there was this rabbinical thought. It's called the Mishnah. And basically the Mishnah... It's this idea, it's a commentary on what the rabbis taught. 
at least ever since they came out of captivity in 586 around there BC or a generation after that. And it's called Second Temple Judaism because there was a second temple that was built. And then they had all this teaching and thought. And what the thought was, the thought was an interpretation. And the interpretation was an interpretation of the scriptures. And the scriptures are what we call the Old Testament, but it was the law, sometimes called the Torah, or the writings and the prophets. So you had the law, the writing, and the prophets. And so the rabbis would read that, just like we do, and they would say, this is what I think it's saying, and then they would teach that. Now, the rabbis were kind of on the top in that culture. They were, they were respected. They were the 1%. I mean, in, in some ways, they still are. Have you seen The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Yeah, the rabbi's coming over for dinner. I mean, it, they were the ones that everybody wanted to, to, to get to know the rabbi and to have the rabbi come over to their house. And so there's this passage in the Mishnah where it talks about the rabbi coming over. Sometimes they were called sages. It says, when the sage comes over, sit at their feet and be shrouded in the dust of the rabbi. To be covered in the dust of the rabbi. The dust was sort of this metaphor. The dust was his teaching. It was his interpretation of the scriptures. And if you wanted to uh, listen to the rabbi, then you would sit at their feet, and that was the place of a disciple. In fact, if you wanted to follow a rabbi and you wanted to be a disciple, first of all, you had to be like the top 1%. And that's a whole sort of another story of how you get to be the top 1% as a Jewish boy in that culture. And there were these things that you had to pass along the way. And if you didn't kind of show yourself good enough or smart enough or one of the best, then you had to go back home and you went into the family business. You started to fish or you, started, you became a carpenter, or something like that. And so if you were looking to follow a rabbi, you would pursue that rabbi, and you would learn everything about that rabbi. Sometimes it got a little weird, like, like, like the rabbi couldn't get rid of you. Like, like, come on, dude. And they would follow. Some people think the dust of the rabbi has this idea that you would follow in his footsteps and be covered in the dust of the rabbi in his teaching and interpretation. And if the rabbi turned around and he saw you and he said, you're the top 1%, and I want you to be one of my my disciples because you're going to carry on my interpretation of the scriptures and every rabbi wanted their disciples to carry on their interpretation of the scriptures i don't want somebody that's going to mess it up you got to be the top of the top you got to be the best of the best and if that was true then they would say take my yoke upon you jesus in matthew 11 looks at the crowds And has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He felt for them. His heart broke for them. He said, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. And then he said, take my yoke upon you. Take my teaching, my interpretation of the scriptures and the story and what God is doing in this world upon you. And he says it to everybody. He doesn't say it to the top of the class. He says it to everybody. He just opens the door. And when he calls his disciples, he does it all backwards because a rabbi didn't call disciples. Disciples pursued the rabbi first. And Jesus was a rabbi. I mean, he's the top of the top. And he calls these different people. I mean, he calls four fishermen. 
Like they had, they had dropped out. They went back to their work. And that was true for, for the, the majority of the population. He got this guy, Peter, man. I mean, Peter, Peter used to put his foot in his mouth all the time. He's saying things. He had tremendous courage, and he would always go first. But he also struggled with fear. Paul had to, the Apostle Paul, had to oppose Peter to his face because Peter at times would teach one thing and then he would live a different way. And he said, you're a hypocrite. Don't do that. There's Peter. And then there's James and John, sons of thunder. I mean, these two guys, uh, you talk about a couple of characters. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus wants to go to Jerusalem. It says he sets his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. It's the end of his life, and, and, and he knows he's going to the cross. He's going to die for the world because he loves us. But they have to go through Samaria, and there's this village there. And so he sends them up ahead. Hey, go, go make preparations. You know, find a place for us to stay in the Samaritan village. In the Samaritan village, because there's these race relations and there's this ethnic stuff and there's this religious stuff and, and, and Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And the Samaritans say, no, you guys can't stay here. You're Jews. Get out. So James and John come to Jesus and say, hey, that Samaritan village, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and we'll just burn them all up? How about that? Sons of thunder! I mean, Jesus is looking at them going, you knuckleheads, let's go to another village. We'll just find a different village. That'll be cool. There's one time where James and John, they go behind the other disciples' backs. Like they scheme because they want the power positions and the leadership positions. And there was even one time where they couldn't even go to Jesus themselves. They send mommy to Jesus. I mean, these are the followers, the closest disciples. These are the ones that Jesus chooses. How about Thomas? You know, doubting Thomas, right? And not only Thomas, but after Jesus rose, again, it says in the scriptures that some of them still didn't believe. Like they see the risen Jesus and they still don't believe. If you struggle with faith, you are in good company. I struggle with it every day. I rack my brain. I get frustrated. I'm like, why God? What in the heck are you doing? I don't get this whole thing. I mean, this is actually the normal Christian life. And when you read people that have lived that life, that's normal. We all struggle with faith. How about Nathaniel? This guy, Nathaniel. Not a lot is said about Nathaniel, but he didn't like people from Nazareth. He's the one who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know that town down there? All those people have this reputation and they're all the same and we shouldn't trust any of them. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, Philip says come and see. Just, just come and see. Let's, let's investigate this. So you got this guy with this prejudice or whatever he was dealing with and believing stereotypes and all this other stuff. You got Andrew. Now, not a lot is said about Andrew in the scriptures. There's a guy out there who's married to Amber Garza who runs our guest services. His name's Andrew. He's serving you coffee. And I said, sorry, Andrew, there's nothing said about you, dude. But you're one of Jesus' disciples. There you go. And then you got Simon the Zealot. I mean, who chooses a zealot? Jesus is meek, power under submission, this beautiful, unconditional love, full of grace and truth. And he chooses a zealot, the zealots, the religious terrorists of the day. They would use violence against Rome. They would use violence against their own brothers and sisters. They didn't get along with really anybody. And Jesus chooses a zealot. 
This weekend is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. And I just think there are times in the history of our country that are, that are unbelievable. If, if you haven't thought about it this weekend, you should go and listen to his whole I Have a Dream speech. Like not just the, the parts at the end that you know, but the whole thing. Read a manuscript on it. Or better yet, read his letter from the Birmingham City Jail. It's a treatise on nonviolent movements. It's meekness. At Lakeside, we say we love meekness, and meekness changes the world. It's unbelievable. Jesus chooses a crazy zealot to follow him. Holy moly. I wonder what happened to Simon. I wonder about that sometimes, like how his life was changed because of Jesus. And then, of course, there's Judas. Judas the thief used to steal money from the team, betrayed Jesus with a kiss, sadly ended his life. But Jesus washed his feet, too. He called Judas to follow him as well. Jesus pushes it even further. Those are the 12, and I didn't even talk about all of them, but... He took this extra step, and this extra step that he took was scandalous. I mean, that's the right word for it. When we think about it in its cultural location, it was scandalous because there was another group of people that were also his disciples. They also followed him, and the writers wrote about them. One of them was his mom, this teenage girl that got pregnant, and that was scandalous and had to go live in Nazareth where there was no good reputation had to travel down to Egypt, had to come back, all sorts of hardship. And what must that have been like to go through all of that? Last week, Pastor Brad talked about Mary Magdalene. Seven demons cast out of her. Now, I watched way too many movies in the 70s and 80s, and I don't know if her head was spinning around, but that's freaky to me, all right? That's just weird. But what was it like to be her, man, this radical change in her life? Or you have the woman in Luke chapter 7, and she doesn't even have a name. She's the sinful woman, probably a prostitute, and she anoints the feet of Jesus. She weeps, and everybody gets bent out of shape, and Jesus says, leave her alone. There was one uh, woman that followed Jesus, and her husband worked with King Herod, the crazy King Herod who murdered Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, and his wife was following Jesus, part of that core group. Wow. Wow. Or what about Mary from Bethany? You know, she's the one like the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha and they're at the house and and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus being shrouded, being covered in the dust of the rabbi. She's in that place and Martha's back preparing all the food and she comes out and she's kind of bent out of shape and what does Jesus say? He says, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. Why is that scandalous? Because Mary is sitting, first of all, in the male space in ancient culture. Women did not sit in that space. And secondly, she's sitting in the space of a disciple. She's doing culturally exactly what you would have done if you wanted to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus says, leave her alone. I mean, Jesus was a radical. Make no mistake about it. 
I mean, he was like, in your face culture, I'm going to do things differently and you're not going to get it, but we're going to keep telling the story. If you're writing sacred books, you don't include women as the leaders. You just don't do that. But in the book of Acts, it said that they put women and men in prison who were leading this movement called the way. Who do you put in prison when you want to stop a movement? You put the leaders in prison, right? That's why MLK was put in prison. If you want to stop that kind of movement. Jesus chooses you. He does the exact, exact opposite. He doesn't wait for us to pursue him. He pursues us. C.S. Lewis called, them the, called him the hound of heaven. I mean, he's on our trail. He's always thinking about us. He sees the brokenness. He sees the parts of our lives that we hide from everybody else. The scriptures say when we were far from God, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus opens his arms and he says, you can be my disciple. You can follow me. Take my yoke upon you. And he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He was so different than all the other rabbis. And then Jesus travels with these 12 and, and the other women and there were other people that kind of came in and out of, of the group. And, and Jesus was great in, in the crowd space, in the large space, and he was great in that midsize space. But man, he did this journey with this smaller group and he loved them and he forgave them and he taught them and he let them be embarrassed, but he didn't shame them. And they did this journey together and then he leveraged them and launched them off into the world, and they changed the world. And he looks at you and me, and he says, let's do it again, and again, and again, and again. I just believe that we all need a space where we can go deeper. You know what I mean? Where we can like dive into the deep end of life. Because the five crafts are great in the crowd and they're great alone, they're great in the mid-sized group, but there's something about prayer when somebody knows your journey and they know about your brokenness and they're doing that journey with you and then they pray for you. That's a whole different ballgame. Or when you're wrestling with the scriptures and you open it up and you're saying, well, here's my yoke or here's my dust, here's my interpretation and what's yours and you wrestle with it and, and yet it's done in an atmosphere of trust and love where you don't have to be afraid to be wrong or be afraid to be told, oh, that's not the right answer, as if the Bible was an answer book instead of a journey of wisdom. It's not an answer book. That's how we treat it sometimes. But that's not the way it's designed to actually operate in our lives. But to be able to have that dialogue, that would be beautiful. Or to connect on a deeper level or maybe to show generosity, like not just financial generosity, but like generosity of heart towards one another. Maybe we serve one another or maybe we go as a small group and we go off and we serve somebody else. The small group is the crafts space. It's where those kind of get worked out and become beautiful in our lives. I've been a part of small groups ever since I was 20 years old. And I don't think every month of the year, every year of your life, you need to be in a small group. There's times where you need to step away at times. I've been a part of small groups that weren't healthy for me, and I had to check out. Thank you very much. I need to go find a better one. I've been a part of beautiful ones. This morning I was praying, and I was remembering these five guys that I used to meet with at 6 in the morning, every Sunday morning when I lived in Colorado. 
those guys were amazing in my life at a point in my life where I really, really needed them and they made me better. A better father, a better friend, a better husband, a better pastor, a better human being. Sometimes I've led small groups. Sometimes other people have led them. Sometimes I've joined the kind of the church small groups. And other times I I don't even say anything. I just, I'll I'll go, you know, form one off in a coffee shop and and that sort of thing. And then there's times where I just had to take a break and go, whoo, I'm going to take some time off of a small group. And then I'm going to kind of get my energy and, and go back into one. I don't know where you're at this morning. But what we do believe is that transformation often happens in the small couple of you, you know, one-on-one or five or ten or whatever, whatever works for your dynamic. One of the things that I thought all those years ago in Austin when I was at that backyard barbecue when I was sitting there is, is I, I thought to myself when I was watching all those kids jump on the trampoline is, I just want more. Like, this is great, but I, but I want more. You ever feel that way? Like you just want some adventure. You want, you want something more, like there's more to something in your life or to your life. You want to you you go further. We've been saying lately, let's just go further. What would that look like for you? Here's the warning with this whole thing. Living in the small is going to take a ton of work and it's going to hurt. But I believe that it, totally pays off. The investment is worth it. Even when things go wrong and you have to leave it, that pain can be redeemed. I'm talking to somebody about that right now, these days in my life, who's going through a really difficult situation with a small group of people, and we're talking about how that can be redeemed and used down the road, even the worst situations. I just believe that there are times when God wants us to leave the shallow end of life and dive into the deep end, and we have to swim like mad, but he is there every step of the way, and he wants us to be together in this. Would you pray with me this morning? God, thanks for your amazing love and the fact that you pursue us, and you pursue all of us, and that's comforting to know. God, our behavior oftentimes says that we don't deserve it, but our dignity and the fact that you created us and you love us says, yes, we do deserve that love because you made us to receive that love. And that's a beautiful thing. And so, God, in this room this morning, we trust you to do what only you can do and to be the Spirit of God and to move in our hearts, open our hearts, challenge us, move us. And God, may we, may we respond to you this morning as we dive into the deep parts of life. In your name we pray. Amen.